This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies. From healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution, Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. Hi, I'm Céline Boujak, and we will be talking about real assets today. Joining me is Ben Mackey, fund manager at Hawksmoor Investment Management. Hi, Ben. Hi, Céline. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me. Um, so Hawksmoor recently moved some allocations around, right, from real assets to corporate bonds. First off, can you tell me what you sold and why? Yeah, sure. So um, I think a bit of background might be kind of useful it, just to sort of set the scene a little bit. So back in January 2021, which seems quite a long time ago now, we, we wrote an article called Time for a Different Approach in which we basically argued that traditional sort of equity bond portfolios would struggle to generate, um, you know, attractive returns that were capable of meeting client objectives, primarily because we felt a lot of equity and bond markets were trading on very expensive valuations. And we argued that therefore, as a result, that sort of differentiated portfolios um, that could look beyond equities and bonds would would be necessary to meet those those sorts of client client objectives. And as a result, we had, you know, really quite significant exposure to sort of real assets that you mentioned, things like niche property, digital infrastructure, battery storage, and and, and so on. Now, when we wind forward to um, this year, uh, we've seen pretty marked sell-offs in both equities uh, and, of course, the bond market as well. We've seen gilt yields rising, we've seen credit spreads sorry, guilt yields rising and credit spreads widening. Um, and that really creates the backdrop for why we've reduced our real asset exposure. And we can go into it in more detail, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of what, what we've sold, it's and this has been going on for sort of the course of, a, of around a year, we've been selling some of our property exposure. Um, hasten to add, you know, we have had significant amount in property over the last three, four years. All I should say, access via investment trusts, none of it via open-ended funds. Mm-hmm. Um, use of investment trusts, of course, allows us to get stuck into some really sort of niche areas uh, of property. And we've all been, also been selling some of our real assets. I can give you some, some, some sort of specific names if if that helps. But yeah, that would to be give good. you an idea of the quantum of the move, so our property exposure within our distribution fund, that peaked around 20, 20-odd percent back in 2020. It's as low as 9% now, uh, and a good chunk of that reduction was done before the uh, the mini-budget and the ructions that that caused in uh, bond markets and also in, in real asset investment trusts. Yeah, I was going to ask, actually, I mean, when you did reduce your allocation and sold some of this exposure off, um, was it at a loss? or? Yeah, so a good chunk of it was actually done prior to you know the mini-budget towards the end of September. And that really catalyzed this spike in bond yields, which in turn caused all sorts of issues in in property, but also other real assets. And you know why that? Why is that? Well, it's because real assets have um, a sort of degree of implicit duration within them. Uh, for and, and we again, we can talk more about why that is. But clearly, with the inflation outlook or, or the probability that the range of possible outcomes for inflation broadening at the start of well, back end of 2021 and the start of this year, and I was being aware that you know 
these real assets do have implicit duration, we began we began exiting things. So some of those names that we exited, um, supermarket income REIT, uh, AEW UK REIT, uh, regional REIT, uh, all of those were full sales either at the back end of last year or early this year. Uh, we also sold Roundhill Music. Not that that's necessarily a real asset, but it certainly sits within the alternative bucket. Uh, we also sold Atrato on-site energy. So those are just a few names, but a good chunk of the reduction in real assets was done in the first half of this year or the back end of last year. Now, we were at, we did we did continue to own some property in real assets and continue to do so now, and they've certainly caused a degree of pain for our fund performance over the last sort of three three months or so. Um, yeah. So what have you held on to? So we've, I think the, so the the reason, one of the reasons, so the, it, this sort of ties in with the point about this idea of implicit duration with, within real assets. And that plays out in a number of channels. The first is, you know, most of these assets are valued using uh, discounted cash flow methodologies where future cash flows are discounted to present value using a discount rate. Now, that discount rate is a function of a risk-free component and then a, a risk premium that, that's appropriate to the nature of the underlying assets. Now, as the uh, risk-free rate increases, that does obviously have the scope to push the overall discount rate higher. Um, and all things equal, as that discount rate moves higher, valuations fall. The other channel is, of course, a lot of these investment trusts that are used uh, that, that we use to access real assets will employ some sort of leverage. Now we're we're pretty wary about financial engineering. We don't like um, don't like you know assets or returns that have been induced by the use of gearing. But you know a lot in a lot of cases the the, the application of some leverage is appropriate. Um, now clearly, where that debt is floating rate in nature, as as the front end of the curve moves higher, their cost of debts goes up, and that can have implications for you know the cash flows they generate and, and dividend cover as well and so those things in mind what did we end up holding on to well first of all it's assets that have a sufficiently high discount rate to absorb moves in risk-free rates um where we thought that um yeah that, that a move higher in the risk-free rate wouldn't necessarily result in a a big shift up in in the discount rate used to value the assets, and a good, good example of that is Gresham House Energy Storage, which discounts the discount rate it uses in its valuation methodology, ten point eight percent. So that's a pretty big cushion over and above, you know, the ten year gilt yield, for example. Uh, and on the debt side, um, things like Gresham House Energy Storage, Gore Street, which also operates in that area, pretty low levels of leverage. So again, not particularly vulnerable to the pressure of rising debt costs um, that we've seen impact, you know, some property trusts and some other real asset trusts as well. And the other really important thing here is in an environment of rising um, returns that are available in government bond markets and corporate bond markets is I think investors have come to look at some of these real asset returns entirely rightly, you know, in the context of improved returns elsewhere. Uh, and if you're just looking at these things on a yield sort of premium basis over what you can get in government bonds or corporate bonds, then that attraction is, clear, is clearly compressed. So what we're really looking for is is real assets that can deliver attractive total returns, i.e., yes, a nice level of yield, but also scope to to grow the NAV and grow the capital. And again, 
Gresham House Energy Storage is a good example of that in that mm-hmm. um, delivering a, a half decent uh, covered yield, but also scope for lots of um, write-ups to the valuation, which is driven primarily by the fact that when their assets move from being in construction to being operational, you see a, a fall in the discount rate uh, and that drives valuation uplifts. And the pipeline in terms of as- their assets that are moving from being uh, in construction to being operational, pretty good visibility on that. So, you know, to sum up, it, it's about having discount rates that have margin of safety in them. It's about investment trusts that aren't overly geared or where the, the gearing is fixed. And it's also about... Um, total return and not just yield and that's really where we've been focused in terms of where we've retained exposure within the real asset space mm-hmm. and i know that in the past um, private equity trusts have been good performers for hawksmoor portfolios so i'm just wondering um, how that sector is doing now and how you're viewing it yeah i mean obviously there's been quite a lot of pain in in the it was only in the share prices of private equity so we've seen you know, private listed private equities traded on discounts forever, pretty much, and I think that that's a legacy of of, of um, issues, particularly concerns on regarding balance sheets around the the great financial crisis, and we've seen discounts on private equities trusts blow out to sort of forty percent in some cases, forty five percent, which is much wider than has been typical. Now, I think you know part of that is investors moving to price in write downs to those NAVs as as marks come in from public equity comps and we've seen weakness in you know across the board but particularly within the US and uh, within the Nasdaq and you know investors rightly probably saying well you know private equity valuations are not going to be immune to that but I think the the the, the moves in the discounts are probably more than um, you know discounted that sort of risk I think balance sheets in general um, within the listed private equity space are much, much stronger than they were in um, 2008, 2009. So I don't think um, concerns there necessarily explain why the shares are trading where they are, although we had a, 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 a an interesting snippet of news out on Princess this morning where they've, they've cancelled the dividend um, due to liquidity constraints, inability to make realisations given difficulties in um, sort of leveraged loan markets. So, you know, maybe that's a niggling concern, but, you know, we're very focused on the the trust we own, Um, Oakley Capital being a a good example, and they're continuing to make realizations, uh, uplifts to carrying value. The portfolio remains um, conservatively valued. And the operational performance of the underlying companies continues to be to be excellent. So I think where we're exposed, we're, you know, it's been moderately, moderately painful in terms of the share price performance. But from here, we think, you know, on any sensible time frame, the returns from those um, well managed listed private equity trusts should be pretty, pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. So you've held on to those holdings? By and large, we've held on to uh, our private equity exposure. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, absolutely. Certainly, yeah, the, the the changes we made within the portfolio have really centred around reducing our exposure to, to real assets and increasing our exposure to, you know, more vanilla assets as they become cheaper. 
And I mean, uh, some of the issues with real assets that you highlighted. So is this more a long term kind of um, view on how they're going to be um, with rising inflation and rising interest rates? So what's your outlook more generally for the asset it, class? Listen, I think long term real assets have a really important part to play in a multi asset portfolio. They, you know, the focus, our focus within real assets has, has long been on um sorts of assets that have underlying cash flows that are pretty well defined, where economic sensitivity is low. Um, and that can obviously bring decent diversification benefits to to a portfolio. First and foremost, we're concerned with what are the likely returns from these from these assets. And as I say, you know, over the last few years, <clears throat> we've seen real assets delivering total returns of kind of, you know, eight, 10, 12% in some cases. And Actually, at a, net, at a net asset value level, there's probably, you know, we think that on by and large those sorts of levels of return can can continue. So, sort of eight to ten percent. Now, the sell-off that we've seen in private within property, particularly, we think has been largely rational. So, the discounts that have blown out and the net initial yields that they're implying, they do seem pretty rational given what's happened in the bond market. So we're not relying on a, or wouldn't want to rely on a, on a sort of narrowing or amortization of that discount as, as part of the total return story. But there's plenty of real assets that can deliver eight, ten percent total returns in a fairly sort of non-economically sensitive way. Now, that's really attractive, of course, when gilt yields are at sub one, and when investment grade credit spreads are at 100 basis points. So you're getting, you know. 200, 250 basis point return from investment grade credit. It, it is, it isn't so attractive when you can, you know, buy when the risk free rates at four and a half. Admittedly, it's back down to three and a half today, but when you can buy actively managed investment grade credit funds yielding more than 10 percent, we need to be paid in a liquidity premium for owning some of these real assets. And at the moment, we can achieve similar, if not better, returns from, you know, vanilla credit. Um, so in terms of the long-term view, we, we, we're not macro investors, so we don't really try and predict what's going to happen to inflation. We saw, you know, how polarizing that debate was, you know, people in the transitory camp, people in the non-transitory camp and clever people on both sides of the argument. So we, we don't have any edge in trying to guess that sort of stuff and spend a little time thinking about it. When our allocation to real assets will change is driven really by you know, what are the respective return prospects from those sorts of assets versus things like corporate bonds and equities. And as those vanilla markets or those more traditional markets have cheapened this year, you know, their return prospects have, have improved. And that's been alongside the, the our sort of acceptance recognition that there is implicit duration within real assets it's really been as much about this emergence of better value in more traditional areas that has driven that shift. And, you know, if corporate bonds spreads tighten aggressively, if guilt yields go back to one and a half percent, then I think there's every chance we'll start buying these sort of eight, 10 percent total return real assets that, that we've owned previously. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thank you so much, Ben. Great. Thank you very much. Yeah.
This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies. From healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution, Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. 